0: We cannot possibly overemphasize the cross. We cannot talk about the cross of Jesus Christ too often, too deeply, too enthusiastically. We just simply cannot ponder the cross too much. your Bible, I want to um, invite you tonight to join me in two places. So you can go ahead and be finding these two places. The first of these will be John chapter 3. We will begin in John chapter 3 and then we'll go from there to Numbers chapter 21. Most of you can probably find John 3 pretty easily. Numbers is maybe a little bit less familiar. It's the fourth book of your Bible. So just find Numbers 21. Maybe stick a piece of paper there or a finger, bulletin. And then join me in John chapter 3. We're going to begin here looking at, and his name is Nicodemus. And we're going to begin by looking at him. And as we begin here, I just want to sort of set the context by saying to us that we will be looking at two passages that are among the most unique passages of the Scripture, particularly the John 3 passage. In John chapter 3, Jesus is going to have a conversation with Nicodemus that, as far as I can tell, is the only conversation of its type in all the Scripture. Jesus had lots of conversations with lots of different people. He had conversations with his antagonists, his enemies, as they tried to attack his teachings and attack him personally, attack his disciples. He had lots of conversations with them. Jesus had conversations with others in which he invited them to leave behind their sinful life and follow him. And those invitations were declined, such as the invitation to the one who said he would follow Jesus and just wait for, let me let me go and bury my father. and uh, Or the one who said, I'll follow you. And he says, well, have, foxes have dens and holes in the ground. And I don't have any of that. Or the rich young ruler who said, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And so these conversations that Jesus would often have with people, which he would invite them into the new life that he offered to them, were sometimes declined, and those were rather short conversations. He had other conversations with people in which he invited them to follow him, and they could be rather short conversations as well, even shorter, in fact. He would say things like, leave your nets and follow me, and they would, and that would be the extent of the conversation. So he had lots of conversations with lots of different people, but to my knowledge, he only had one conversation with one individual, at least one that's recorded in our scriptures, in which he reasoned, with a man who was being called by God to believe and Jesus reasoned with him as to why he should believe and how he could believe. This is, of course, the conversation that he has with Nicodemus. So we'll begin there and then as we turn from there to Numbers 21. Numbers 21 is also a climactical passage for us because Numbers 21 is the climax. It's the high point of the whole book. That passage will be familiar to us when we go there as well. Now as we begin, um, let's just remind ourselves of something that we all know very well, and that's this, that we cannot possibly overemphasize the cross. We cannot talk about the cross of Jesus Christ too often, too deeply, too enthusiastically. We just simply cannot ponder the cross too much, and that's what we'll be doing tonight. For the point of the message tonight is the same as the point was last night. Anybody remember the point from the message last night? Simply look to Jesus. Just look to Jesus. We have that same point tonight. Just simply look to Jesus. So let's begin in John chapter three, just to set the context of John chapter, John chapter three. John begins his gospel back in creation, or even prior to creation. And he, and he begins just by establishing that Christ, the Son of God, the second person of the Trinity, has always been and always existed. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was was God, and the Word was with God. And this Word was there at creation. Creation was by Him, through Him, and for Him. And then this Word entered into creation. The Word became flesh and dwelt among us. The God who created all things entered into His creation as part of His creation. And by entering into His creation, the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. The Word began to issue forth an invitation to receive, to come, and to hear, and to believe, and to receive. And then we begin seeing a pattern. And the pattern is that this invitation, this call, that's a better word to use, this call was refused by most, but answered by some. And the ones who refused it were oftentimes his own people. Sometimes the one who answered it was his own people. The ones who refused it were sometimes not what would have been considered his own people. And oftentimes they were. Those who would answer it were also not considered his normal people or the people that he would come to, such as, for example, the two examples that come first in John's gospel, which would be Nicodemus, to whom we'll look tonight, which would have been considered one of his own, a Jew, one of his own, a Pharisee. And that that call upon Nicodemus will be answered. And then after this comes the call to the Samaritan woman at the well, someone that would who would have not been considered one of his own, and she hears and she comes. But then nevertheless, most who hear this call will refuse it because that's emphasized by John throughout chapter 1, chapter 2. He came unto his own and his own did not receive him. But to those who did receive him, he gave the power to be called children of God or sons of God. So we see this theme being built. And the theme is that the call goes to all people, but it is refused by most. It is rejected by most, but it is received by some. And then we find the first miracle of Jesus' ministry. The first miracle was the turning of the water to wine at at the wedding at Cana. Now the wedding at Cana, the miracle that took place there, the turning the water to the wine, is an illustration of what will follow after that. Because the turning of the water to wine, the point of that miracle is the point of replacement. The the point of displacing the old and replacing it not only with the new, but with the new that's far better than the old. The old water is displaced and replaced by the wine that is far better than the water that was in there before. And that's to illustrate the means or the way in which These who would hear the call and believe the means by which they would do that. They would do that by hearing these words of Jesus and displacing in their heart their old ways of thinking of how one comes to know God or how one comes to be a child of God, displacing that with this new information that Jesus is giving them. So we'll see this, secondly, by the woman at the at the well. She has her own ideas of how one comes to know God. She's got all these ideas about, uh, she says, well, uh, you're a prophet, so tell me, which mountain are we supposed to be worshiping on? This mountain or the one that we we say or the one that you say? So she's got her own ideas about how one comes to know God. Those ideas have to be displaced, and Jesus displaces those ideas first by drawing attention to her sin. Go and get your your husband and bring him here. Oh, you don't have a husband? Oh, okay. You've been living with five different men, and so so on and so forth. So she has to have her ideas displaced by Jesus' confrontational words. Likewise, Nicodemus also has his understanding of how one knows God, and Jesus has to do the same with him. He has to displace those old ideas of how, that are ingrained in Nicodemus as to how one is right with God, and he has to replace it with the teaching that we're going to look at tonight, the teaching that we'll all be very familiar with. So with that context in mind, let's just begin here in chapter 3, verse 1 of John's Gospel. So beginning from verse 1, now there was a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus, a ruler of the Jews. So this man Nicodemus was a high-up type of man. He was a ruler. He was uh, of the upper echelon, a ruler of the Jews, we're called. Not only is he of the of the exclusionary sect of the Pharisees, but he also is a ruler of the Jews. We're going to be told a little bit later that he's the teacher of Israel. So he's he's a high-ranking, important sort of fellow. Verse 2, this man came to Jesus by night. So as he comes to Jesus by night, sometimes it is thought, well, we're told that he comes to Jesus by night because... He is maybe at the beginning point of listening and believing to Jesus, but he doesn't yet have the courage to come out in the day and be seen with Jesus in the day. And so he comes by night, by the stealth of night, because he doesn't yet have that boldness in him to come by day. So sometimes that is often pointed out. Other times, other people would say, well, no, the reason he comes to Jesus by night is just because that's how things were done, because... Nicodemus is a busy guy. He's, a ruler of the, he's the ruler of the Jews. He's the teacher of Israel. And like a lot of people, he's busy with other responsibilities during the day. And the night would have been the only time he had to come. We think of, uh, for example, when Paul was in Corinth. And Paul is teaching the Corinthians there in, in Corinth. And, and we read that he was a tent maker by day and that he would teach at night. And so oftentimes that would be just like our, our lives today. When there's something, you've got responsibilities during the day, but then you, when there's something else to do, you do it at night. We don't know which it was. But either way, it really, it really doesn't make much of a difference. I would just encourage all of us not to get too attached to one way or thinking of the other because we're not told specifically why it was he came by night. We just know he came to Jesus. This man came to Jesus and he came by night and he said to him, Rabbi... We know that you are a a teacher come from God, for no one can do these signs that you do unless God is with him. So that's a true statement. He makes this true statement, no one can do these signs unless God is with him. And that's the point of all the signs that Jesus does. That's the point of his teaching. That's the point of his mighty works. We are told that the mighty works that Jesus performed, as well as the mighty works that the apostles performed, The purpose of all of these signs and wonders was to affirm and to validate the message and the messenger. That's the point of the miracles. Hebrews chapter 2, we read these words. How shall we escape if we neglect such a great salvation? It was declared at first by the Lord, and it was, speaking of the salvation, it was attested to us by those who heard while God also bore witness by signs and wonders and various miracles and by gifts of the Holy Spirit. So he says, this salvation was proclaimed to you and it was attested by God. And the way that God attested it was through signs and wonders that validated the message. Or Acts chapter 2 and verse 22, men of Israel hear these words, Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested to you by God with mighty works and wonders and signs that God did through him in your midst. So there Peter says, he's preaching this, this sermon and he says, you yourselves saw the mighty works, and what the mighty works did was attest to you the validity, the genuineness of the man Jesus and the words that Jesus spoke. Or for, uh, also, for example, Matthew 11, we think of Jesus' response to John the baptizer. John the baptizer sends this message to Jesus and says, Ask him, is he really the one that we're waiting for? And how does Jesus answer that? Well, you can know if I'm the one that you've been waiting for because of the signs. The blind see, the deaf hear, the lame walk, and so on and so forth. Or uh, 2 Corinthians 12, and Paul talks about the signs of the apostles. So the signs and wonders were meant to attest to the validity of the messenger and the message. And so Jesus performs these signs and wonders, and they attest to his message. They attest to his identity And Nicodemus rightly recognizes that. No one can do these signs and these wonders unless they are sent of God. Now, there's going to be some other times in our scriptures in which people come to Jesus and they say similar words to Jesus, but their their purpose is going to be to flatter him. They will come to Jesus and they'll say, Jesus, teacher, we know that you don't give any stock to people's opinions, but you only listen to God. And they don't mean that to be a, uh, an observation that they are recognizing that he's a, this true teacher. They're, meanting, they're meaning to butter him up, to flatter him. Nicodemus doesn't have that motive. He's not coming to flatter Jesus. And we know that for two reasons. First, we know that because we know Nicodemus' story. We know that later on at the end of the gospel, he is going to be one of the two men who risks his position and his reputation to go and retrieve the dead body of Christ off the cross and bury it, thereby associating publicly with this man, Jesus, who was just condemned and executed for being a traitor to Rome. So that's one way that we know that Nicodemus has genuineness in his request. But the other way that we really know this, this is more important, the other way is we see that in Jesus' response. Jesus' response is to essentially take Nicodemus by the hand and, as we said earlier, to begin to speak these words to him in effort to help him to come to this saving faith. We see an example here of a man who is trying what I believe is his best to believe in, upon Jesus because God is working. God has, has worked in his heart and has drawn him to Jesus. And he's trying his human best to believe upon Jesus. Jesus encounters him and then engages him with this conversation to draw him further into this belief. So picking up again at verse 3, Jesus answered him, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. So that would have seemed like a, like an odd answer. Jesus, uh, Nicodemus says to Jesus, teacher, we know that you're sent from God for these mighty wonders and signs that you're doing. And then Jesus says, hey, nobody can enter the kingdom of God unless you're born again. That seems like, we well, you want to say, well, Jesus, why did you answer that? with The two things don't even seem connected to one another. And I think that oftentimes Jesus, of course, he has a laser beam focus on what he wants to talk about. And so he certainly could have taken the conversation there quickly, but I think that the bigger thing to see here is is John is not recording all of the sentences that were spoken. His his point, his goal is not to record every single sentence in the dialogue between Nicodemus and Jesus. He wants to record the main central points. So probably there is some more conversation between here. and This whole conversation between Jesus and Nicodemus probably took place, oh, I don't know, over 30, 45 minutes, an hour, two hours. But then in the course of the conversation, Jesus then turns to to Nicodemus and says, you know, Nicodemus, you cannot enter the kingdom kingdom of God unless you are born again. Now, the metaphor that Jesus will use with Nicodemus will be lost on him. He won't understand this. He, He will not follow Jesus's train of thought. And he can be completely excused for this because... This is the first time this metaphor has ever been used. The Old Testament never used the metaphor of new birth to speak of the life that God brings to His children. And in fact, this metaphor is only going to be used one more time by Peter. In 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 23, Peter will say, "...since you have been born again, not of perishable seed, but of imperishable." So that's the only other occasion in which there is a clear reference in which the metaphor of new birth is used to describe the conversion of a sinner to be a child of God. There are a couple of other places where it's alluded to. For example, uh, we think of uh, 2 Corinthians 5 and verse 17, when Paul says, if anyone's in Christ, he is a new creation or new creature. And that sort of alludes to a new birth. Or Romans 5, where Paul speaks of being buried with Christ in his baptism and raised to walk in newness of life. That also alludes to a new birth. But outside of that, this and the words of Peter are the only times that your Bible speaks of conversion as a new birth or being born again. So Nicodemus, we can certainly understand why he's going to struggle with this metaphor. But what the metaphor is saying to him, what Jesus' words are saying to him, are essentially three things. He's going to say, first of all, this new birth... Is non-optional. Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. So this is non-optional, Nicodemus. This is a required prerequisite. Secondly, Jesus is going to say that this new birth is a work. It's a matter of the Spirit. And ultimately, this work of the Spirit is beyond you.